0: All right, thanks for listening to the Future Christian Podcast. My name is Lauren Richmond Jr. and I'm pleased to be joined by author, pastor, and activist Doug Paget. Hello. Hello, Lauren. Nice nice to meet you. Yeah, thanks In for the being podcast here. world. Yeah. Uh, we cannot see each other face to face. We're doing this pure audio and I have to ask, mm-hmm. um, are you wearing a hat right now? Literally wearing that hat right now.
1: Yes. Okay. That's blue, what else. I'm going to put yeah, on blue my fedora hat.
0: style. Yeah, hang on. I'm gonna
1: turn up put my
0: am off and put on my hat because I was review. going
1: to. I thought about. I was right on the edge of uh, broadcasting this live on Facebook while we did the while we did the interview because I like to do that a lot. I like to take any of the interviews. Oh, well, you don't have to do it.
0: We'll have to do it the other way then, and you can, you can be in charge. That's right. Um, That's right. <laughs> I but was I just reflexively sat down behind a microphone and put my hat on. I was inspired uh, looking at your. Your stuff online as a balding middle-aged white man uh, to embrace hats more.
1: Well, I don't know if you're interested in it, but I can give you a, ta- a hat tip. I got it from oh, a yeah, hat from a uh, a hat maker in uh, Boston. I w- walked into a shop and I said, "Hey, look! I w-, this was a few years ago. I said, I want to start wearing hats. I want to mm-hmm. I want to become a hat guy." And this guy serious as can be, you know these hat hat fellas, and he says, "Look." So so I said, I I, want to be a hat guy, so I'm looking for the right hat. And he looks at me, serious as can be, and says, it's what's in a man's head that makes him a hat guy, not what's on a man's head. That's great. So uh, there's probably a deep life lesson in there. I don't know what it would be, but at least Mm -hmm. as far as hats go, you got to first get in the mindset because if you look for the perfect hat, uh, You'll always have that internal narrative because I probably spent ten years trying to find the right hat. And then I just, you know, made the decision. Nope, I'm going to be a hat guy. And mm. it's a, you know, it's a lot of it's a lot that goes with it. People ask the question if you like it. It feels like the kind of thing you can't sort of do halfway and be a hat guy. Yeah. In fact, I asked a guy named Jay Baker. Do you know who Jay Baker is? Jay Baker. Um, yeah. Yeah, we'll have to get him on sometime. Yeah, you should have him. Well, you we can should introduce me. We should come on together and talk about hats <laughs> because Jay has long, long, long been a hat guy. I, I mm-hmm. feel like I've known and talked to Jay, you know, in many settings for years, decade,
0: more than yeah. a decade.
1: I don't think I've ever seen him without a hat on. Wow. Uh, so I, I asked him. I said this thing about you know, being a hat guy and uh, and all, and he he confirmed. He said, "Oh, absolutely. It's a it's a state of mind, not a state of the hat." Hmm. Profound.
0: Well, I like to joke that, um, I have a big head literally and figuratively. <laughs> so, it, well, I have to take that into account when I shop for hats. Well, it, it, so. it adds, then it, it, it makes it even better. I
1: think any people with peculiar head situations, hat uh, size, shape, whatever, or body size, like I'm really tall, you know, I'm six foot seven. So mm-hmm. I have to think mm-hmm. about a hat in a in a whole different way as well. Uh, it, it, it it helps because um, it narrows down. You're, you're not just going to walk into any place and just grab a hat. You're like, no, mm-hmm. no, no, no. There's a thing going on here. And there's a whole process that you have to go through to get that hat to fit, to, to fit. So. So take take that as a uh, as a sign that you're prepared to be a hat
0: guy. <laughs> well, look at us like talking like we're best hat like old, buds, old, butts, here. old hat buds, and we we old, barely old, even old know each other sitting around, you yeah. know, chatting it up and about the brims. Believe it or not, we're here to talk about more than just hats today. For those mm-hmm. listening, it's a, little, um, <laughs> a little disappointing to someone, I'm sure. <laughs> well, <laughs> Doug, uh, I had the pleasure of meeting you a couple of years ago at a church planners conference. And uh, I've loved hearing about and reading about your work, uh, Solomon's Porch, and then your work beyond that. But for those who don't know you, and for me, tell tell us about yourself, besides hats.
1: Yeah, uh, I live um, in the Minneapolis area. I've been a pastor uh, of the church you mentioned called Solomon's Porch. Started that in um, 1999, so 21 years ago. And I just left my role in January of being the the pastor of that, of that community. And Nikki Franz, a person Mm -hmm. who hails from the, uh, area where you are in Colorado is uh, moving here soon and will be taking on, um, a, an, an expanded and, and different role. Uh, but it Mm -hmm. assumes the role and the roles that I've had in that community for all these years. So, so that's a bit of a, of a shift and change in life. Um, you know, to have done one thing in one place, I I've done other things along with that. Um, you know, we've obviously, you know, over these 20 years of doing Solomon's Porch, raised our family here. We have four children and two little grandchildren. And um my wife uh, is a yoga instructor and runs a mm-hmm. yoga teacher training program. And uh, uh I'm a long distance runner. I run ultra marathons and I'm currently oh, wow. uh, recovering from a hip replacement surgery a few years ago. And I'm still wow. getting back my leg strength and all. So I am a... The worst kind of long-distance runner, the the frustrated long-distance runner that uh, yeah. on most days, uh, I wish I was on a 50-mile run. Um, wow. And uh, uh, yeah, I, I run an organization called Vote Common Good, and we exist to try to inspire, resource, and motivate faith voters, especially evangelicals and white Catholics, to stop the re-election of Donald Trump uh, on Election Day, November 3rd. And uh we do that as an act of faith and uh, as as a way to call people to act justly and to love mercy and to uh walk in a way that is humble so so that's what i that's what I do in my and, and I write books, which is some some of what we're going to talk about yeah. Yeah. Uh, or or at least i you know i've said this I've written ten books, and I've said this after many of them at least I used to write books, so I don't know if I'm still writing them or not i I currently am not writing anything so The book uh, "Outdoing Jesus: Seven Ways to Live the Promise of Greater Than" might be the final book.
0: Well, hold on then. Like, let's not spoil it. Then, before we get there, we're going to talk about that. (laughs) What does it mean? Tell me, um, tell me what. uh, Tell me a little about your faith journey, if you would. Kind of what, if there's been some kind of transformation or change from your past to your current?
1: Yeah. You know, I wasn't, I was raised in a family where we didn't have any religion at all. Uh, we never talked about it. Uh, I never went to church before I was 17. Didn't have really any construct for the Christian faith whatsoever. I didn't know anything about it. Didn't know, uh, you know, the, I didn't know Christmas and Easter had a connection to each other. Um, wow. when I was, before I was 16. Um, just, I mean, think of a religion that you know of and know almost nothing about, and that's pretty much how I uh, yeah. interacted, interacted with Christianity. Wow. Um, but then I had a very life-changing experience um, at a thing called a Passion Play, which yeah. is one of these Easter mm-hmm. dramas. This one was done at a Jesus People Church. Uh, this is 1983. Mm. which felt like at the time a long way away from the Jesus movement. But now that I sort of look back, I realized that it was right at the tail end of the sort of late 1960s, 1970s Jesus movement. And
0: yeah.
1: uh, I stumbled into this, uh, this play through a friend of mine that grew up in the same apartment complex that I grew up in and he had become a Christian and invited me to go with him. And uh, I went knowing nothing about the Christian story at all and just, really connected with the Jesus narrative in, in that play and hearing the idea that God was on the side of humanity and that Mm. humanity was on the side of God and that God wanted to connect with people to call them to a path of, of justice and of goodness. And it, it actually replaced in my own mind, um, this, this vigilante narrative that I had that was, Mm. um, I I, don't, I had this sense kind of growing up that you were supposed to do good, supposed to do right, supposed to yeah. protect the innocent, we're supposed to protect the weak. And I don't mean in like some moralistic sense. I've never really uh-huh. kind of connected to the sort of moral demands of, you know, propriety or something like that. But a deep ethical moral demand of mm-hmm. how people treat one another and um, especially that – the the vulnerable and the defenseless would be defended, yeah. and um, what I saw in the in the Jesus narrative was there there was a way to do that. I actually thought in the passion play that the culmination was Jesus, you know, when he's crucified, saying, "Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing," and wow. then it got to a resurrection, which was even more significant. And that idea that embedded in the story of God's connection to humanity is not only that God is on the side of humanity. But that you can there there can be a way in which people are freed from the very burdens and hatred that's not only happening to them but burning on the inside of them, so all this stuff is sort of racing around in my mm-hmm. head, right and uh so so they do this altar call, which I didn't know what it was, but they just yeah. said, if this is a story that captures you, you should come down here and talk to some people and I was sitting in the front row of the balcony and stood up, and I remember you know what what the Methodists would describe as that that's strange warming of my heart that kind yeah. of
0: thing. Yeah.
1: Uh, went up went down uh front they kind of prayed with you the, and then they brought us to the back room and lauren i've I've spent a lot of time thinking about this part of the story and told it a lot and written about it so i've you know i've uh i've recreated it in my in the landscape of my memory but we're sitting in a big circle there might have been 12 or 14 of us in our circle and then there were lots of these circles right there were lots of people that yep. had come back come backstage and they handed out a booklet and I think it was the booklet Steps to Peace with God, something like this, one of those types. But if you know what I'm d- describing here, it's one of those flat little booklets, maybe four inches wide, maybe two inches tall. And, you know, you, it, it, would, it would go page by page with a different idea. And one of the pages in there had this had this chasm, like a canyon.
0: Yeah. It has yeah.
1: God on one side of the canyon. And the shape of a human being on the other side of the canyon and says, you know, that humanity keeps trying to get to God. And I remember looking at this while the guy's going through it and just about wanted to say out loud to him, like, did you see the story they were telling out on that stage out there? Because the story they were telling on the stage was not a story of there being a separation between God and humanity that was kind of the whole point is that there's no separation between God and humanity <laughs> right like and then they had recast the story in this booklet yeah. into something else and I have looked back on that date and realized from the first fifteen minutes I was into the Christian faith, I was already fussing and fighting with these people's with people's pre-described descriptions of the story of the Christian faith that I didn't think matched not only my own experience, but also the biblical narrative. And I've just felt like for, you know, 30, whatever it is, 37 years, I've been uh-huh. sort of wrestling with that same dilemma of wow. person after person handing you some version of a booklet mm-hmm. uh, that that tells you, well, here's, here's an explanation that just is like Freaky Friday version of the explanation uh, of, of, of how the thing goes. It's just as backward as can be. So, um, and partly because I grew up in a situation where I didn't have any religious backing or religious background or religious upbringing, yeah. I never yeah. felt like I was indoctrinated into a way. And mm. I was old enough, you know, I was sixteen, almost seventeen. I was able to sort of look at everyone's explanation, including my own, and just say, like, I, I don't know, like that's not a given. Like everyone has an opinion about this stuff, and I find that to be very, very uh, heartening. I mean, I think theology is fundamentally a person's opinion, and um, we should we we can take it or leave it, and we can adapt Mm -hmm. it and play with it. But it's not anything more than that. And doctrine is just a theology done over time by a group of people and adhered to by a group of people rather than an individual one. So, so doctrine is the same way. It's, it's a, it's a person's or a people's explanation of, of how things work. And sometimes they're helpful. And a lot of times, a lot of times they're not. Well, anyway, that's that's how I got into Christianity. And then I was, then I was head in head, you know, had to feed in this thing and uh, started uh, started my life as a, as a provocateur and activist in Christianity um, right away, I got suspended from my high school. The next school year, wow. for handing out Christian literature, and sued my school district for violation wow. of my constitutional rights, and yada yada yada. And, you know, so I've kind of been in that in that in that frame of of personal faith that's good for the world and is supposed mm-hmm. to be disruptive of um, of systems and structures.
0: Wow, and uh, it sounds like there's a lot of integration between your early faith and your current faith is, is there anything you'd say that's different
1: you know it's curious uh I, i've thought a lot about this that and i've talked to a lot of friends of mine that are in this kind of work you know and we're older um that a lot of us had some sort a lot of people i know had an experience with christianity that was either new like mine or was profound for them in their teenage and late teenage years. And Mm -hmm. now they're doing ministry work and they're trying, basically a lot of us, if you push us hard enough, you realize we're trying to get back to an version and expression of Christianity that matches the story that was happening in us when we first got into it. Wow. In fact, I did an interview with a guy named Pete Rollins and we said the same, I said, Pete, you know, I, I just feel like, you know, we have very similar kinds of stories. Do you ever feel like you're kind of chasing the faith that would have that you want to have a faith now that would have made sense to you when you were 16, and you know he's had very very similar kinds of experiences. It's just been over and over of talking to people who who have that same thing. So I think what's happened to uh, to me at least is that over the years I've learned uh, a whole lot of different versions of the Christian faith. Um, and again, I I don't think that's a problem. I think that's been the his the history all the way through. In fact, I think the Old Testament is a debate in the library of the Hebrew scriptures between different belief systems, vantage points and takes from the, from the, the, the priests and the prophets and the, and the Kings and the different tellings. And this is why you have multiple creation stories. This is why, you know, Kings and Chronicles tell the same story from two different perspectives, because there's a debate going on about how you're supposed to understand this and the the debate in the Jewish tradition between Elohim and Yahweh, Mm -hmm. You know, this, yeah. this there's this thing going on, and in Christianity, that's totally happening. That's why we have four Gospels. You know, uh, the the, <laughs> the Christian faith, even even when it got forced into a you know pigeonhole by uh, by Constantine and Augustine and all the others of the first centuries, mm-hmm. they um, they at least kept a, a, a collective of voices. And we know as best we can from early Christian history that around the Mesopotamian area, different Christian traditions were coming up that had. Um, Their own scriptures. You know, they may have had one of the Gospels, but not all of them, or they got some letters. You know, uh, like people living in Corinth may have never read the book of Romans, like it it didn't, didn't make it to them, you know? Um, so you you have these, these different expressions of Christianity. There's nothing adherently wrong with that. Uh, we now would call those different denominations or different personal experiences or, Mm -hmm. I don't know, groups. Um, so I, I think that's, I think that's just part and parcel. I, I don't have an opinion if it's a good thing or a bad thing. It just is an is thing. And, um, so I, and I think it's incumbent on some of us to make our contribution in our age, in our time of the kind of Christianity that we think people should be, uh, endeavoring to, to follow and to live out. And, um, that's what I think is the, the, the call for, for some of us. I mean, some people become pastors or church leaders or yeah. ministry leaders, and they just buy somebody else's, um, you know, franchise, so they become, you know, a Methodist or oh, Presbyterian a or a Disciples or something, and then they're like, I "Oh, I that got that it!" You know, words. here, here it is. And some people are going to be chefs, right? And they're going to make their yeah. own restaurants. Uh, and and um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a question sort of facing all of us in the work in the in the work that we do.
0: Yeah, well, that's great. Do you have any spiritual practices that you've latched onto recently? Either, well, I guess recently, or maybe from your past that you'd recommend to others. Yeah. I've been, I've been pushing hard into, um,
1: uh, community through conversation and through bodily, um, practices, right? Mm, So, uh, body prayer, taking your lived body experience pretty seriously. Um, uh, like I'm a runner and stuff. So I incorporate that. My wife is a yogi, so she does it. She does it that way. Letting your prayers be postures as much as words. Mm. Um, and And then trying to, so, so essentially trying to connect with your spirituality through your body and trying to connect with other people through dialogue and through connection and through conversation uh, and through uh, sharing with someone else, both in empathy and in ideas. Hmm. And um, those uh, are the practices that, that have, that have been meaningful for me, partly because I'm an external processor and somebody likes to live in the very present moment and, you know, my, my mind, spirit, heart come, come open when, when I'm in an engagement with, with different people. And so, uh, I, and I, you know, over, over a life, you're, you're sort of taught other people's practices and then you mm-hmm. like try those for a while because you think, well, I don't know. This isn't, whatever I'm doing doesn't really work well for me. Right. Uh So I'm going to try this other person's idea. And it's only once you come to the grips of lowering your expectations of your own spiritual development that you ever actually make any headway in spiritual development. Like, can you our, our can Christian you spirituality? Yeah, I'd be glad to, because I've been thinking a lot about this. Our Christian yeah. spirituality, we got to, we got to lower our expectations of, about the level of transformation and change that we're, that we're really pursuing, right? Like mm-hmm. it's, um. And probably deepen into the things that we know are are deep and legitimate, like pursuing Mm -hmm. justice and and hope and and faith and love. Um, But all the rest of it, um, I mean, this idea that sort of every day or... Every week, Sunday by Sunday, you're going to get some new insight. You're going to get some yeah. new boost. You're going to get some new way to grow. I mean, it's a form of greed and gluttony. Actually, I don't mm-hmm. know if you're familiar with the Enneagram, but yeah, um, uh, you know, in the Enneagram, they'll talk about how the, the the passions are tied to what are often referred to as this this the deadly sins. And mm-hmm. the 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 there's a kind of desire for spirituality that is that is just it's 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 gluttonous it wants it more and more and more all the time and i mean there's even people stand up and sing songs like more god more god more god you know i mean (laughs) it it kind of kind of paces along some kind of a strange little you know love making sexual passion but uh it's it's just it's it's demanding that i get more and more and more and i think what we ought to do is find ways and this is something you can i think it might be a bit easier to do sort of in a later part of life, but mm-hmm. to be able to hone that down and to say, "Now I'm going to, f- I'm not going to be as greedy and I'm going to take moments of insight of spirituality, of love, of hope, of faith. I'm going to treat those as precious jewels that I've discovered. And I'm going to savor them rather than sort of take it and set it aside and look for another one and take it and set it aside and look for another one. Um, yeah. I had a friend of mine went and saw the 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 movie Noah uh a uh-huh. long time ago. you know I think yeah. it uh, well, that rings, yeah, that rings a bell um, uh, I can't remember who is who was in it, but anyway, a lot of people hated the movie Noah um, mm-hmm. but the the thing about the, that they did in this particular movie is that Noah hears from God that he's supposed to build this ark, right, and then Noah, as the biblical story says, never hears from God again. And mm-hmm. Noah kind of goes crazy, right? Uh, like you had one moment of clear insight, one moment of clear calling from the divine, and that was it. Yeah. You didn't get one every week. You didn't get one every other day. You got one, and it sort of drove him mad, right? And I, yeah. I, I love the, the sort of narrative of that, right? Like could, could one live in one moment of clear spiritual calling? And I just think we would do, Better to allow our spirituality to be a bit more long-lasting, a bit more lingering, and a and a little less grabby.
0: Well, that would that I mean, just as I'm hearing you, would transform in my mind churches we know it. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, and I'll say this as a pastor: like, kind of the pressure to come up with fresh, inspiring content every week. And especially the way that it may be fair or not evangelical church in America over the last 20, 30 years has created this expectation of this feed me mentality. Yeah. So, wow, that's good. Yeah, no, it's, good. it's
1: a real thing. Like I, there was some joke I, I knew a long time ago about a, like a pastor who got up and preached a sermon. And then the next day he got up and preached the same sermon. And the third week he got up and somebody yelled from the front row, you're not going to preach that sermon again. And he goes. Oh, did you figure out how to live that one already? Because if you did, I won't, you know, I won't, I won't preach it this time, right? Uh, could, could you imagine, you know, that thing? Because it's funny, like, we just decide, in, in, you know, what what things need to stay fresh and what things need to be repeats. Like, if you're a music fan and you go see your favorite musician, you kind of want them to play the hits, yeah, right? And you go to church and you kind of want to sing familiar songs. Like, yep. you've run churches. Like, we have, you know, people don't want to sing the same song every week. Or, right. or they, they don't want to sing all new songs every week. Right? They, they they want to sing some familiar ones. But if you try to share something that's the same of what you shared last time, there's this thing about well, oh, we we already heard that. Give us something new. Mm-hmm. What new do you have? What's something new that you have? And and look, I I I think we should be you know delving our own spiritual lives as you know communities and and mm-hmm. pastors and all. But um, I think we should temper ourselves as somehow being. A never-ending vending machine of uh, dispensing great spiritual wisdom day after day,
0: and that really gets into the other side of the coin of pe- when people say, "Oh, I'm not being fed." I'm sure you've heard that at some point. Yeah. Years. Well, either
1: you're a baby or an invalid if you need to be fed, right? Um, so I'm I'm not sure which. A lot of people eat; they're not fed. So yeah. if you're not if you're going to church and you're not being fed at your church. That's probably because you're not feeding yourself. Wow. Um, Doug, dropping some truth bombs here. <laughs> oh, good. That's old material from my 2003 and four days when we started Solomon's Well, church. it's it's good.
0: But, uh, well, this is just the introduction, so let's move in. Uh, let's oh, I move thought into we your were, work a little bit. I thought we were finishing up there, but okay, <laughs> let's keep going. Um, tell me about Solomon's Porch, the church you started, Um. As a church planner, I'll ask you this question, like, why start a new church? I
1: needed a place where I could practice my own spirituality um, and want to try it in a way with other people that were willing to experiment um, in a new path of spirituality. We hmm. uh, we, we We, weren't. We, we knew that there were people who saw the world the way we did. So we, yeah. we knew that the struggles we had, other people had, we knew that um, the most significant Change that happens in a person's life is when they lead, not when they, um, not yeah. not when they simply follow something. And so, if you look at anyone's life and have them describe the moments of transformation, you know that happen in them as a human being, including their spirituality, happens when they're leading something. And the problem with churches isn't that the pews are full; the problem is that the leadership structure is full, right? So, uh, part of the reason for starting new churches is that you give a whole new group of people a chance to take a run at it and, mm, um, it's good. And, and, th- and that's what we were trying to do. And, and I think churches should only exist for a certain length of time anyway. And then they, they do just over time become closed systems. Yeah. And so yep. you start new churches because, you know, the same reason you start new restaurants or new businesses or something, it just, it refreshes the whole, the whole yeah. uh, life and the whole process and the whole system. I'm not entirely sure churches are the best way to carry the story of Jesus in our world um mm-hmm. anyway you know i feel like they might be an outdated mod- uh, modality for carrying the practices and the community and the faith that would live its way in in the way of jesus but they're adequate they're they're generally sometimes good enough so mm-hmm. we might as well uh, have those be refreshed uh, as well and they're one of the only ways in our society that a person can frame a Job or a career or a life around leading something of spirituality, the category for that is a church or maybe, maybe a nonprofit organization if you could, you know, if you can work it just right. Um, but if yeah. you're going to have a group of people go on an exploration of faith with one another in some kind of a set of regular practices and life engaged moments, well, that's kind of a church. I mean, it's, it's pretty yeah. hard. To, it's a, yeah. And, and, and I'm, I'm actually, I bemoan the fact that in my adult life, you know, from 19, whatever 1980s through the 2020, that we haven't come up with a better way to carry that whole thing than, than <laughs> the same old, same old, hmm. with all the innovations that have gone on in the world. And we still are stuck with the best way for people to live their life collectively in an act of faith and goodness and justice in the world is still that same old borrowed model. So that's, uh, I really thought, man, if you'd, if you'd asked me 20 years ago, Lauren, when I was sort of in the Solomon's porch space, a uh, uh, timeframe where yeah. you are now with mission gathering, if, yep. if we'd been doing this interview, you know, in some sort of time warp back then right. and we had talked about 2020 because, you know, mm-hmm. back when we started Solomon's porch in 1999, early 2000, every church and denomination and so on, they all had 2020 plans because it was right, clever, right. you know, vision 2020. Yep. Uh, uh, well, here we are 2020. here we got you know marches race riot, race riots a pandemic Mm -hmm. uh uh uh, an imbecile as the president of the united states is damaging the the well-being and health of the planet and all who live on it and churches uh still kicking around doing the same old thing so uh i would have thought really would have thought uh we would have more options after these 20 years uh, than we have Mm -hmm. and frankly i feel like we had less have less now back in the not, not to be old manny about this, but yeah. back in the day, back in the, you know, 90s early 2000s, you know, back in the previous millennium. Yeah, uh, uh, man, it, there was so much going on with people thinking about structures and kinds of churches and where they would meet and how they would meet and in bars and in restaurants and in sports teams and. uh, uh, different configurations of them. And there was just a thing going on where conferences and books and everything was about what was emerging and what was coming and what was going to be. And that the sky was the limit and we could make anything. And man, now, geez, I I, I don't know. Maybe you're seeing it. I I don't, uh, I've, you know, I'm, I'm older now, so I'm not invited maybe to the, you know, what 20 year olds or 25 year olds are talking about with churches, but I would have thought I would have heard about them. Uh, and I don't think there's a lot going on. I think it's a lot of wash, rinse and repeat, um, you know, 3D printing replica stuff going on. So,
0: yeah, um, I mean, I'm in I'm in Colorado's front range in the Denver metro, which is like everybody comes here to start new churches because we're so unchurched. Yet it's also like a notoriously hard place to start a church. Mm-hmm. Yet it's the same thing. Like, it's the same thing. My my associate here, he has a. Like a film, uh, film studio, and he tries to work with churches. And he he chuckles about how he these pastors come in, really doing the same thing, but trying to, in their mind, they're doing something different, but really just the same thing over and over again. So yeah, that's a great observation about because you're right the, that emergent church movement. If I'm understanding what you're describing, now it's what 20 years old, and yeah, it's it's now it's just like you know, start a mega church and that's it. Yeah. So, and, and, and those were around back then, you know,
1: we were yeah. I used to work at one. Like a lot of us were trying to say, we want to do anything but one of those. And then a lot of people in that world with us just went off and started those. So yeah, the, 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 the force is powerful. Apparently the gravitational pull into saying, yeah. so yeah, anyway, long answer to what do we learn? What do we do? You know, we like Solomon's porch is not a model. Uh, mm-hmm. like, you know, there's, didn't didn't really burr the movement of churches built in its same modality. Um, people are mm-hmm. like, oh, is that the place with the couches? You're like, oh, good <laughs> lord, seriously? Like that's that's what you got out of that, you know? Yeah. Um,
0: yeah. Well, one thing I was interviewing uh, Katie Hayes, which I think came from your, she trained with you a little bit.
1: No, oh, I'm a I'm a
0: Katie Hayes fan. I'm the president yeah. of the Katie Hayes <laughs> fan club. She spoke about. Uh, three things about next church. And one thing she mentioned was being highly contextual. And I think that's an, that's a, something that's really stuck with me since our conversation, that importance of not just trying to replicate a certain model, but being really contextual. So do you think that's what something that's made Solomon's porch really unique is its contextuality to its community? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think there was an appropriate level
1: of, of self-focused, um, life there. and I don't mean that we were only worried about how we're doing, but we Mm -hmm. only worried if what we were doing was working for us, for our community, for our neighborhoods, Mm -hmm. for the places we lived. Didn't care if it fit anybody else. We didn't care if it matched some expectation of different traditions or denominations or orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. We were obsessively caring about is this good for the people who are part of this community and for those who interact with the people in this community like is 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 what we're doing working for the we would say every week as a benefit and blessing for the world um and so that's what we meant by contextual right we weren't Mm -hmm. we weren't using contextuality or missionality as a way to reach a group of people we were trying to say does this seem to be a legitimate expression of us as a people
0: mm-hmm. in this yeah.
1: place at this time and and trying to sh- try, trying to to keep away all the other pressures of how and who we should be both our own past notions of ourselves uh, the ones that we brought in from our upbringing or from our childhood or from our, mm-hmm. our life, you know, in, in other churches. And also then the the very burden that our own history was creating for us, right? One of yeah. what, what the things you realize when you start a church is you got about, I don't know, six months of time when there's no history haunting you. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I remember, honestly, Lauren, the second week of Solomon's Port, the second time we had a public gathering, the second one of them somebody literally said, well, that's unusual. We didn't do that last time. <laughs> We'd only done one. <laughs> okay. you, you know, but I, I think maybe we had six months before there was enough of that built up where mm-hmm. there was some kind of a haunting, uh, uh, you know, legacy and reputation hanging over us. So you have to build in a regular practice like, you know, like oral health that you mm-hmm. have to clean daily to get the, the residue of who you have been previously to be your fuel, like the food you consume without being something that's sort of the, the limitation that holds you up and build up on your teeth. And man, it's, it's the one thing that a lot of church leaders ignore to their peril is your own success and reputation is
0: that which will begin to haunt you. Wow. Yeah, that's great. So, you've kind of hinted around at this, but you know I, I need to hear it because I'm a church planner. So, I need to learn. What would you say is maybe your biggest lesson you learned or maybe the biggest mistake you made?
1: Uh, I don't know. I don't, they're so... There's so many. We, we we incorporated the notion of mistakes as the most healthy thing we could do. We we expected to make mistakes. We expect culture for things of
0: accepting failure.
1: Of failure, yeah, yeah. And we we yeah. we thought it was supposed to work that way, and it you know it 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 doesn't it's, it doesn't take a hero to get to that level. You're just like, I not know. That's what you do in sports. That's what you do in art. That's right. what you do in writing. That's what you do in all of life. Like, why do people act as if that's a, that's a major statement. So we just said, Hey, we're going to fail here as much as we yeah. and other people fail in every part of life. And that then, might be and then just,
0: we'll do something about that. That might be just a, like good enough. I think especially when there's, when the stakes are high, it almost makes failure seem so much more, needing to avoid failure yet when the stakes are high, you almost have to try that much harder just to take risks and be willing to fail. At least from my perspective.
1: Well, that's failure, say, my engaging failure thought. and being willing to fail in some ways is, is about a deep pursuit to do something well. Right? Uh, like, like if you yeah. lower your expectations enough where failure is not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's, that's a way to do it. There's a, there's a, there's a great way to not fail. There's a great way yeah. to not be embarrassed. There's a great yeah. way to not have your plans come up short and feel the disappointment. There's a great way to be sure you're never standing in that church space and looking around thinking no one's coming. There's a mm. great way to, to feel like when you're driving home at night that you didn't just, you know, um, uh, do your job in a way that's going to be embarrassing to you and to anyone else. If they ever tell the story of what happened at that, at that meeting that morning or that night. Yeah, there's a lot of ways to avoid that, Um, but those are also the things that like, why else are you doing this? Do you you really think people need your church so bad? (laughs) Like they kind of don't. I I promise you the majority of people in, you know, name your city, the majority of people in your city, they're not going to come to your church. The majority of people in your state, nope, not going to come in the country. Nope. In fact, all the people in the world, they're not going to come to your church right every everyone's not gonna come save a couple of hundred or a couple thousand, right. even churches that are like really big deals, right? like we've got five thousand people, we've got thirteen thousand people at our church, yeah, so what? There's seven million people that live within driving distance of your place, or there's you know four million <laughs> yeah. people. that's a statistical zero. it mm-hmm. is it, like the the obsession with us thinking that we're like um up to something that has to be transformatively great for society and culture. We are all a tile in this mosaic. We're all a thread in this, in this blanket and we need to do our thing and make our contribution and all. But what we're doing with our churches is not trying to execute something to such a degree that the ripple effects of our moment or of our program or of our, of our service or gathering just linger in the air. Um, I mean, and probably only once people actually experience a high level of success, are they able to say like, okay, well, the difference between success and failure, marginal. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, so, so, so give it a try, try something, risk a little, Um, Yeah. lean, lean in a bit, lean in over the plate.
0: That's great. Let's. Let's move on. We've been talking about hats so much that I feel like we're running out of time to talk about uh, your book. So let's talk about your book, uh, your most recent book. Could be your last book, right? Uh, Outdoing. I've I've heard people say this. Yeah, I've heard people say this could be the last book he's ever written. Seven Ways to Live Out the Promise of Greater Than. So what's your goal for the book?
1: So the the book is written um, uh, around the statement of Jesus, where Jesus says, those who believe in me— will do the works I'm doing and do even greater works than these. And that's where the notion of greater than comes from. Jesus' call that those who believe in him would do the works greater than he does. And so what I'm trying to do with the book is to introduce to some people for the first time the notion that Jesus' expectation for his followers was that they would do greater things than Jesus has done. And Mm -hmm. that phrase is exclusive in the Gospel of John. And that phrase is in response to the seven miraculous signs that Jesus has just been credited with doing in the book of John. Mm
0: -hmm. And then when
1: he looks, then he talks about, and he basically says, those things I just did, those seven miracles. And there's only seven miraculous signs in the book of John. There's not nine or 11 or 15. There's seven. And I think they're meant to match the seven days of creation. I think they're a, uh, they're a creation narrative. The gospel of John starts out with a creation poem, just as the book of Genesis book of Genesis has seven days of creation, seventh on which the Lord rests. And the book of John has seven days, seven acts of miraculous signs. The seventh of which is the rising of Lazarus. So there's a thing going on in the, in the literary structure of John and, Jesus says, you know, those people is outdoing the very miracles that Jesus is up to. But I think it's rooted, it really roots a kind of spirituality, right? The spirituality that says that Jesus is not to be understood and talked about as the miraculous exception to humanity, but rather as the magnificent rule for humanity. In other words, Jesus looks without fear of competition on humanity and those who are going to follow him in the in the steps of of the human way but the people yeah. are going to do what jesus has been doing and do even greater things than these and then theologians who chosen to deal with this subject have right. debated about what is the greater then does that mean in frequency does that mean in volume does that mean yeah. in impact um and so what i do in the book is i suggest how each of these seven become an archetype for how people can and should outdo jesus from the water to wine through the raising of Lazarus.
0: Wow. Now you write about moving beyond the superhero image of Jesus Mm -hmm. and it talking theology here, we've kind of been beaten around the bush. Like it it makes me ask, like are we looking at like a new Christology, a new understanding of Jesus?
1: Yeah, I sure hope so. Um, you know, I mean, I, I'm trying to suggest that and the, you know, step one is to remove the, the singular category of Christology. Okay. Yeah. Right. Christology, understanding of the Christ ought to be subsumed into anthropology. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. Good. But um, <clears throat> so, you know, that's sort of the, f- the first step uh, of it. Mm-hmm. And then we could move on to some of the other theological problems that, that are rooted from having a separate conversation about the christ than you do about the spirit than you do about god uh-huh. than you do about humanity it's that it's the ologyification of spirituality and the christian story that creates the problem right huh. uh, like you, to, to have a study of christ separate from the study of fill in the blank uh-huh. there's the problem right that in, in their lies, lies the circumstance. But to your point, yeah, I do think we have to think about Jesus differently. And there was a super long section that, um, uh, that, that whole bit that's, I don't know, it's like one half of one chapter maybe on getting rid of the superhero and mm-hmm. the need to get rid of the superhero. Man, that was, that was like, probably written as much almost half as much as the total length of the book on that topic and it all got whittled down by by wise uh editors into that little bit but that's basically the core of of the reason i'm writing the book is trying to provide the christian spirituality alternative to the superhero narrative
0: and it's a really fascinating idea because i i mean again I wrote in my notes, like, it feels a bit sacrilegious or irreverent, but Uh that's apparently what you're trying to do. Yeah? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Look, look, the first step to
1: good Christian spirituality is sacrilege and and, and, and irreverence, right? Go on about that. I mean, that— this is that's the whole story of Jesus, right? Jesus, got, he gets crucified because the, on the religious side you have you know one set of pressures saying he's claiming to be one with God, yeah. And on the other side you have the political pressures of of Herod and Pilate conspiring right. with the religious conservatives to kill the Son of God, yeah. In the twenty first century under the Trump administration, just as in the first century under under Herod and Pilate and Jesus, but.
0: Uh-huh. Um,
1: That's the whole thing, right? Is that it's the very act of sacrilege that you get to that. Mm -hmm. When Jesus said, once you take into mindset, you start reading the gospels through the lens of heresy or sacrilege or irreverence. Mm -hmm. You're like, oh, there it is. There it is. There it is. There it is. Like when Jesus says the thing at the opening of the Sermon on the Mount and says, or in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. That was sacrilege. People... That's what you said about the word of God. Your word is the light unto my feet. Yeah. The the Torah is where we get the word torch in English. The Torah was the light of the world. Jesus looks at people and says, you are Torah. You are the light of the world. You are the salt that will heal the world. No, 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 no. The word of God would be the salt that would heal the world. In fact, the, the, the opening, uh, I'm going to all preachy here for a second. In fact, the opening <laughs> okay. of the uh, a, a, a creation narrative in the gospel of John basically yeah. does this. And the word became flesh, sacrilege, right? That's the whole, and then Jesus just, he just keeps up with it all the time, yeah. right? He takes the water and turns it into wine and the water that he turns into wine in the very first of the miraculous signs. And they're always referred to, by the way, as miraculous signs. Mm-hmm. They're not referred to, meaning they're pointing to something we 're pointing to a way of humanity so the signs are there to show humanity how humanity ought to live that we ought to live on the same path that Jesus is on the everlasting path the the eternal path um I mean I got a whole bit in there about you know the eternal path and about belief being different than believe and and you know all this there's th- there's a lot in John that sort of sort of leads to all this I won't get into all that now um it's all in the book if people want to pick it up for 1499 it's your local <laughs> Are tell. Absolutely. telling?
0: Yeah. Absolutely.
1: Um, well, the, the water that he uses for wine is the water that came from the purification jars. Like miraculous sign number one, take the thing set aside for purification to make you ceremonially clean so that you would have a clean group and an unclean group or a sanctified group and a sacrilege group. And that's the very container that Jesus turns into the container to hold the wine for all the people to have at the wedding. So the step number one in miracle number one: make sure that thing that's set aside for religious purposes is turned into common use. In other words, sacrilege. Wow! Yeah, just boom right off the bat, right out of the shoots, and and it and it never stops. It, yeah <laughs> right? it just keeps going and and if we think, oh well good, Jesus solved a problem because that was a particular Pharisee problem, and I've you know this is what yeah. I've been taught for years, like, oh see what had happened was that group of people, the Jews, they got it wrong and they messed it all up, and they're the ones that perverted it. then Jesus, the Christian, came along and fixed it, and so now we're living in the fixed world and mm-hmm. they were living in the broken you know yeah. a world that Jesus had to fix I mean, that's not what the gospels are saying. No, I think what they're saying is no, this is the kind of stuff we do. Religion comes in, takes things, and tries to make some special and some not special, some ordained and some unordained, some some religious and some for common use. And mm-hmm. then the gospel wants you to go in and take all that stuff and make make uh, make common use out of all of it. And I, I'm I'm not suggesting that the job is to take the profane and make it holy. I'm saying the job is to take the holy. And make it profane.
0: Wow, that's that's like if we
1: don't get rid of the whole, if we don't get rid of the notion of the holy, we're in trouble. If we think that the whole job is to try to say just call everything holy, call everything holy, and I Mm -hmm. get what people are doing, you know, when they want to sort of say my church is everywhere, so everything is holy. I I get that. That's a great move. I'm not bickering with that at all. As long as it's everything. Right. As it becomes well, it's some things and not all things, then you're just playing the same old game. What we probably need to do is consider everything to be common. Everything wow. and to find the, the beauty in that common. I mean, if if that's not the story that you see of the, you know, away in the manger the 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 lowly one of God yeah. resting his head on the hay, well, the whole point is he's born in a friggin manger and uh-huh. and the reason is he's born among the common, he's not born among the special and and right. then and then we what's the first thing then we do? Make our art to put a little crown on his head, give his you know put a little <laughs> cherubim around him, and then yeah. immediately find a building where we can call one part of the building more special than the other and and good Lord, you just think it takes us you know no time flat to do that. Um, And we do it with clergy, you know, we wear our little collars where we call ourselves ordained. We think we're set apart. I mean, some people even think the word church means the called out ones, the set apart ones, the ones that are set apart for special purposes. Mm -hmm. And they don't mean like a utility tool. They mean like, you know, because it was just a utility tool that was like, you know, a corkscrew in your in your. Uh, kitchen drawer, uh, then that's fine. There's not a lot you can use a corkscrew for other than, you know, opening a wine bottle, or maybe if you get the fancy kind, you could open a beer bottle with it. Um, But that's kind of it. So if that's what you mean, well, it's kind of useful for one particular gadget. Um, But I don't think that's what people mean. I think what they mean is the church is the place that's set apart because it's more holy than the other places.
0: Wow. Wow. Well, this is great, Doug. Doug is dropping some good stuff here let's Let's take a break and we'll come back with some closing questions. All right, we're back with Doug Paget, and uh, Doug, I want to ask you, you can take this as seriously or not as you want to, and be imaginative here with people confine themselves to the Roman Catholic Pope, but imagine you could be like the Pope of world Christianity. Like what's Uh your, what's your big move if you're Pope or equivalent for a day?
1: You know, I think it would be to, to be sure that the, the systems that, that religious people are asked, compelled, uh, uh, encouraged, demanded to pay attention to, the systems and structures that hurt mm. and harm people, what mm. what Paul would have referred to to the Romans as principalities. the principalities and powers, the 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 be no longer um, uh, conformed to the pattern of this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind, um, and that we would recognize that in addition to individual human behavior and psychology that has given humanity so much understanding of itself, we should also understand the deep systems and structures that keep people trapped and in bondage that Jesus would have referred to as setting the prisoners free, Hmm. setting the captives free, and that people are a captive of mind to systems and structures that are designed Uh, and have been reinforced over years, especially for black people in the United States, especially for indigenous people in the United States. And then it's ripple effect to all other people of color with a preference toward white people and Mm -hmm. a ever moving construct of what it means for someone to be white, because whiteness is not actually a, a, a legitimate way of viewing the world, but it's the Perspective that carries so much power, so I think that would be the thing I would want to inject into religious spirituality and especially Christian spirituality, because Christianity actually has a lot to say about that. It's it was born in an age of which Jew and Gentile um, uh, uh, distinctions were a lot was being made of those uh, to the point that some were saved and some were not, and um, yeah, into that world you get a a, a calling for a particular way of being.
0: Yeah. Um, I want to ask too, if there's a Christian or could be non-Christian historical religious figure or theologian, you'd want to bring back to life or meet.
1: Well, Bruce Springsteen would be just fantastic. And Lady Gaga, if like Bruce and Lady Gaga and I could have dinner, that would make, that would make the, make the deal. But if you get a little bit more, um, uh, you know, historic from that, I think it would be like if there was a way to sort of bump history in some time machine like way it'd be go to go back to that Augustine. Mm-hmm. Plagius arguments of the third and four, the fourth century you know the late 300s, early 400s, when the church was starting to form and mm-hmm. uh, when, a, when Constantine was wanting to have one religion that he could dominate his land by, and Augustine became his theologian of choice and mm-hmm. those who followed in the way of augustine and just i don 't know sort of a bumped bumped history enough to to knock a little more. Uh, Pelagius in and a little Augustine out uh, that would yeah. um that would be that that would have saved uh, uh, the faith for a lot of people and certainly would have saved a lot of lives.
0: Well, that would be that would be a big difference. Be a big difference. So Augustine is seen as one of these pivotal, fi- pivotal figures. And throughout Christian history, we can kind of see these pivotal figures. Mm-hmm. What do you think about like our current time and place? Like, is there do you think there's some pivotal figure, some pivotal belief system, uh, structure that will kind of have a sig- historical significance as Augustine?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't think so for Christian faith, only because the, the there was a particular time in the early development of Christianity that Augustine and his cohorts had their had their experience inside mm-hmm. of, uh, and. Christianity's development in the 1600, 1700 years since then has just locked it in to a way that it can't be influenced in the same way that it could have in the first 300 years, mm-hmm. especially in that period. So I don't think so when it comes to Christian spirituality. what what I, what I do find interesting is, will we see the rise of you know sort of a fourth major Abrahamic religion or not? Oh, um, it's a little curious that we haven't, frankly. You know, that since since the expression of of Islam, or since the you know, if you're if you're if you're Muslim, yeah, if since you the appearance of the kind of, of, of the prophet the timeline for that, could, yeah, kind of been a while, uh, yeah. Uh, now, if we were in the 1890s, 1870s, 1880s, 1890s in the United States, the country was full of religious movements. You were pretty yeah. sure something right. was coming out of that. Like that turned into the you know into the the 20th century. There, that was baby. Those guys were fired up. I mean, the you know you look yeah. back at your church history and you're like, what was going on back in the late 1800s? The rise of industrial age and and the uh, the movement of of, of Religious traditions and man, it was incredible. You look at all the all that came out of that. Um, yeah, and they've mostly disappeared or become domesticated. And yep. um, so I'm a little surprised too that we haven't seen, in, in light of the internet and globalization and communication and ease of all this, and um, that we haven't seen a new guru and prophet sort of pop up in in the scene. And maybe it's uh, maybe it's time for that. I mean, even to the point that that we're now living in an age in which you know the Dalai Lama is like, look. I'm going to be yeah. the last Dalai Lama. You know? Right, we're done with this. We're done with the Dalai Lama bit, um, and so you're like, "Wow, this is really going another way." It just seems that uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's a time for a a new religious movement. I would love to see a, a religion born out of the Jesus way that's rooted in love rather than rooted in in obedience. I think that would be hmm. a real uh, a real. Uh, way forward. I know a lot of people are trying to work toward that. Yeah. Um, but when you're trying to do it inside the system that was that's been curated for another purpose, it's really hard. It's really I mean, it's, hard to work outside your packaging.
0: Uh, we have to run. But uh, tell us, tell our listeners where they can find out more about you.
1: Uh, DougPadgett.com is my website, and I'm on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And well,
0: thanks so much for your time, and uh,
1: peace be with you, and also with you.
0: Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. But hey, before you go, do us a favor, subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people. Thanks, and go in peace.